The Bob Murphy Show, episode 151. you gonna do get ready for another episode of the bob murphy show the podcast promoting free markets free minds and grateful souls it's your source for commentary and interviews conducted by a christian and economist now here's your host bob murphy hey everyone welcome to another episode of the bob murphy show today i'm going to be talking with david ramsey Steele. And the specific thing we're going to focus on is his collection of essays entitled The Mystery of Fascism, David Ramsey Steele's Greatest Hits. In case you don't know him, let me just read from the the overview what it says of him. David Ramsey Steele, PhD, is a libertarian writer with a powerful underground reputation for producing caustic, entertaining, knowledgeable, and surprising arguments, often violently at odds with conventional thinking. All right, so what we do in the beginning is... I'll have him, yeah, I have him give a little bit of his autobiographical background, and then we get right into, I just go through some of the essays that I thought were particularly interesting. Let me just mention, he talks about Mises' calculation argument and what he thought Mises was saying. I actually disagree with him on that, but I'm going to just go ahead and do a whole separate episode on that issue, because actually there's a lot of Austrians who, um, like, like even among Rothbardians, that Specifically, the issue is thinking was Mises making an argument about like total output and the viability of socialism versus, you know, I would say calculation. So it's some people might say, oh, it's just a technical little, you know, nitpick point. But I do think it's relevant to, you know, understand exactly what was Mises' claim. So in any event, like I say, though, I'll go ahead and just do that in an entirely separate episode. And without further ado, here is my discussion with David Ramsey Steele. And make sure you keep listening to the end because we get into the JFK assassination. Oh, it's juicy. Well, David Ramsey Steele, welcome to the Bob Murphy Show. Well, thank you very much for having me on. So, of course, what we I think we should spend the most time on is I want to go through your book. And folks, I, I highly recommend it. It's a collection of essays called The Mystery of Fascism, David Ramsey Steele's Greatest Hits, and uh, it was it was the kind of thing just to anticipate what I'm going to say, David. I, I got it. And of course, out of my duty as the host, I had to flip through and read them. But then I was like, oh, wow, I really yeah. want to sit down and read this thing One cover to cover. One of the few people who read it because you've had that incentive. <laughs> but, but, it re- but truly, it was the kind of thing where it went from, you know, oh, this is a duty I got to like, oh, wow, I want to read this one. Then I want to read this one. And, then, and so it was good stuff. Right. Right. So, But before we dive into that, um, we were just chatting before I started recording. I knew of your stuff from the, your work on the socialist calculation debate, but just for listeners, I imagine there's a lot of people, they know your name, but maybe they don't know exactly. Can you just give us a, a rundown of uh, where did you where did you come from and like how did you get into libertarianism and what sort of economics do you subscribe to, that sort of thing? Well, as you can tell from my voice, I'm not from around here. Yeah. Um, I grew up in England, although I'm of Scottish extraction. And in the 60s, I was a Marxist and very active and dedicated Marxist. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was not a, an admirer of the Soviet Union or the People's Republic of China. I was always opposed to those dictatorships, but I thought of myself as a Marxist. I believed in communism as Marx originally formulated it. And um, of course, I'm cutting a long story short here, but mm-hmm. in 1970, I was at the University of Hull 
H-U-L-L, in the northeast of England. Uh, And this, uh, the University of Hull was a rather odd place because it had two anarcho-capitalists there. They were probably the only two anarcho-capitalists at any university in the United Kingdom. And uh, one of them was named Mark Brady. And I had a conversation with him uh, in, in 1970 where he said, well, how do you answer the economic calculation argument of Ludwig von Mises? And I said, well, what's that? Um, mm. And he outlined it to me. I said, well, that's, that's a lot of nonsense. And uh, I have uh, uh, plenty of ways to answer that. Uh, but actually, I thought inwardly, that's a pretty strong argument. Um, so um, and then, in fact, I spent the next couple of years nothing to do with my the research I was supposed to be doing for my uh, for my PhD or anything like that but I actually spent the time thinking about and reading about and arguing with people about the Mises economic calculation argument and I pretty quickly realized that in substance it was correct so um Meanwhile, I was reading a lot of this other free market stuff. Well, can I stop uh, you for a second? Because that's yes, interesting, yep. because especially as of 1970, the consensus among standard economists was Mises had been, had leveled this extremely Absolutely. strong claim. And then during the subsequent battles, Langa and Lerner right. made Hayek retreat from the pure logic of it to more of an empirical, mm-hmm. well, in practice, they couldn't do it. But they, they you know, so that's interesting right. that you actually came away as a Marxist came to a different conclusion, even though most right. economists would have said Mises lost the debate. The Austrians right. retreated. I, I, think, I think actually the fact that I was a Marxist and, and had a very clear commitment to the abolition of money okay. and the abolition mm-hmm. of prices gave me an advantage, strangely enough, mm-hmm. uh, because a lot of the things that um, the conventional wisdom was saying, I realized it couldn't be quite true. I was also, I mean, we could go into this maybe but uh, uh, later, but um, I, it struck me quite quite quickly that um, the reason why a lot of people thought that Mises uh, must have been deluded was the Soviet Union, which was mm-hmm. a successful industrial uh, economy, and therefore, obviously, socialism was possible. And it did strike me when I started reading about it and talking to people about it that People who defended uh, socialism didn't try to defend it by describing a system like the Soviet Union. They came up with other completely different scenarios. Mm -hmm. So there was this kind of peculiar uh, situation where people were impressed by the Soviet Union, its achievements, uh, and supposedly, uh, and therefore they thought, well, that puts paid to Mises. But then when you talk to them about what they thought socialism would be like, it was nothing like the Soviet Union. Right. Um, So that was that was. That was part of my ongoing journey. So basically, I became a libertarian by the mid-1970s. So there, since um, when, when I came into the libertarian movement, this is something we were talking about earlier, there was a, there was a pretty standard um, libertarian orthodoxy, which at first I tended to absorb, but then bit by bit I rejected parts of it. So, for example, it was expected that you would be in favor of natural rights and against consequentialism or utilitarianism. Mm-hmm. And I, I quickly found that impossible to stomach the natural rights arguments, although in a different way. I think there is something to be said for natural rights, but it wasn't the kind of thing that appealed to libertarians then. It was expected you would be an Austrian, that is to say a praxeologist, and um, 
you know, uh, you would denounce the Chicago school as uh, efficiency experts for the state, mm -hmm. as uh, Murray Rothbard famously said. Uh, so I first first accepted that, but then I gradually evolved away from that and became a Chicago boy. Mm -hmm. This was before I moved to Chicago, where I've lived for the past 30 or 40 years. So basically, I've been a libertarian and uh, I've been... Um, Thinking about libertarian issues, a great variety of libertarian issues, as you see from my book. Uh, maybe I should you know, let you t ask the next question. Okay, sure. Uh, because I could go on about my right. own life story. It's in, it's uh, it's uh, tremendously fascinating to me, yeah. my my own life story. But it may not be to everybody. <laughs> well, well, let's see. So, you, when you, you said you got your PhD, so your PhD was in economics. It was in sociology. In sociology, actually. okay. Yes, and it, it actually, my first book, from Marx to Mises, mm -hmm. was became my PhD dissertation. Okay. So I was given a PhD uh, dissertation uh, for that. Which again, there's a, a rather odd story. Um, the sociology department at Hull was dominated by Trotskyists when I was there in the 1970s. Uh, I didn't finish my book on the economic calculation until 1992. And uh, I went back to Hull to defend it as a PhD dissertation. And because of the peculiar thing that had gone on with Margaret Thatcher cutting, cutting down on the universities, mm -hmm. uh, a lot of people didn't, didn't change jobs. A lot of faculty people didn't change jobs. And so uh, because they would have been forced to retire if they tried to change their jobs because of this was the, this was the conservative attempt to reduce um, the uh, cut back on, on uh, higher education. Mm -hmm. So a lot of the people I had known as Trotskyists in the 1970s were still there. And not one of them was a Trotskyist or any kind of Marxist when I went back in 1993 mm -hmm. to talk to them about. <laughs> and, and generally speaking, they accepted the argument of my book uh, they hadn't become libertarians. They right. were left, you know, they were supporters of the Labour Party uh, or the Social Democratic Party. Mm -hmm. uh, but um, they were certainly not, not um, in favour of socialist revolution or anything like that. They basically thought that it was a good book with a good argument. Uh, so, <laughs> um, so, you know, I, I, I sat around a table talking to all these people and um, they, they were all people I'd known as Trotskyists. And uh, mm. at one point I, I said, and I hadn't, been, I hadn't been prepared for this. I didn't know before I went to visit them uh, that I was going to find this. And I looked around the table. I said, I'm the only ideologue left. <laughs> you, <laughs> you people have all sold out. <laughs> but I was a libertarian. Right, you know, right. but, uh, they were all sort of middle of the road um, uh, politicos uh, or, or they'd become apolitical in one or two cases. Mm -hmm. Now, was that because of what happened in the Soviet Union, or you're saying it was more because of British politics? What, why did they oh, abandon? Just because of the, ev the evolution of the British left, you know, mm -hmm. in um, in the 1970s, people tended to be uh, some kind of Marxist to way to the left of the Communist Party. Mm -hmm. Communist Party had sold out and become an establishment party. And you have to remember, we're talking about a tiny minority of the population, right, right. but it was a tiny minority of the population that was uh, concentrated in academia, especially in the humanities, so that um, the vast majority of people were not um, were not Marxists in any way and wouldn't know what Marxism meant. Uh, but um, uh, if you went to a sociology department, many of them were just controlled by Marxists. Right. Right. So actually, I was well, then, why by, by the 1990s mm -hmm. that had all d died away. Okay. Okay. So 
since you're talking so much about it, why don't we, because I did want to touch on your essay, um, The Market Socialist Predicament. So mm-hmm. why don't we go ahead and just ju- jump into that since it dovetails so nicely with sure, what we're talking yeah. about. So I was going to ask you, can you just give us a real brief, there's a lot of terms like socialism, communism, Marxism, Trotskyism, or Trotskyite, uh, Leninist, you know, Stalinist. Can you just give an idea, you know, a quick idea of like, what what are those terms? Because to, to an outsider, a lot of those terms, they would use them interchangeably, yes. but obviously they're not interchangeable. Yes. Um, well, <clears throat> I'm often accused of talking about things I know nothing about, but when it comes to the different usages of words like socialism, communism, mm-hmm. I'm the world's greatest expert, really I am. Uh, so it's, it's very uh, tempting to, to go into great detail, but I'll try to avoid it because it would probably be too tiresome for people. But I think we could say this, uh, that Marx throughout his life, well, from when he was converted to communism in the 1840s to his death, called himself a communist, opposed to socialism uh, and socialists. So in the, in the debate between Marx and Proudhon, Pierre-Joseph Proudhon, uh, it, nobody disputed that Proudhon was a socialist and Marx was a communist. Mm-hmm. Uh, however, around the time of Marx's death in 1883, the, for various reasons, the Marxist movement started to use the word socialism instead of the word communism. But they meant what had been meant by communism. And basically the idea was of a society without money, without prices. Mm -hmm. Uh, Although there was a development within Marxism where they accepted money as a means of rationing consumer goods. So so their idea of socialism was that, yes, of course, there would be money and people would be paid wages. Contrary to what Marx had said, Mm -hmm. abolition of the wages system was his slogan, his revolutionary watchword, as he put it. But so they believe they Marxists by the turn of the century had come to accept that there would be money, there would be wages, but just like now, you'd get your pay packet every week or every two weeks. But within the organization of production, money wouldn't enter into it whatsoever. It would all be in in kind. Mm-hmm. Uh, in other words, it purely in technological quantities. There would be no room for money. There would be no stock exchange. There would be no banking. Uh, There would be no uh, rate of interest. Uh, All those things would have been abolished. So that was the view of of Marxists uh, in the the early years of before the First World War, let's say. Mm -hmm. Now, I think if we jump ahead uh, to the 1930s, when a lot of attitudes were being coagulating and being formed, I would say in the 1930s, there was a tremendous, compared with previous periods in history, there was tremendous unanimity, or not quite unanimity, but 99% of people who called themselves socialists understood more or less the same thing by that word. And what they meant was everything would be owned by the government and everybody would be a government employee and incomes wouldn't be precisely equal, but they'd be a lot more equal than they are today or in 1930. Right. Uh, And this was, for example, I've written a book about George Orwell. This was George Orwell's view of socialism. Um, He defined it as precisely in those terms. Everything would be owned by the government uh, and uh, everybody would be a government employee and and incomes would be a lot more equal. Mm -hmm. Uh, So that was the essence of socialism. And, And that was... Uh, the Labour Party, the Communist Party, all branches of socialism, the vast majority. There were still a few holdovers from earlier usages, but 99% of socialists agreed that that was the definition of socialism. Uh, 
and and um, and they all thought that this was a desirable and b inevitable. Mm-hmm. Uh, the part of part of the, the so- socialist thinking always was that it was not just a good idea. Let's try it out, but it's inevitable. Mm-hmm. Which society is evolving in that way. Uh, capitalism is developing into socialism spontaneously. This was Marx's view, and it was believed as late as the 1930s, as late as the 1950s, actually. Uh, so, um, so that that essentially um, the, the the whole idea that uh, you get rid of production for profit and have production for use, as it was called, in other words, without using any monetary measure, uh, was the essence of socialism. So what what about like you had mentioned the term Trotskyite? Right. Well, you know, there was um a split in the Bolshevik ruling class in Russia. Two people who had been socialist revolutionaries before the revolution. Stalin went way back in the in the Bolshevik party. Okay, in Russia there was there were in Russia there was a, a, an organization called the Social Democratic and Labour Party. In in Russian, of course. Mm-hmm. Um it split, uh, and after it split, this is before the revolution, it split into two. And they, if you look at their letterhead, it's the Russian Social Democratic and Labour Party, parentheses, Bolsheviks, uh, and the, the Russian Social Democratic and Labour Party, parentheses, Mensheviks. Bolsheviks means my, majority, uh, Mensheviks means minority. And it's because in a certain com- a certain committee decision that led to this split, that had been the division. The mm. Bolsheviks were in the majority, although most of the time from that point until 1917, the Mensheviks were actually in the majority, although their name meant minority. Right. Um, and the Mensheviks were more orthodox Marxists. So they tended to take the view that you couldn't have socialism until you had already had capitalism to develop the forces of production. Uh Whereas the Bol- the Bolsheviks took that view as well until 1917, when they suddenly switched and became um, thought that it was possible to have a, a socialist revolution in backward Russia, which Orthodox Marxism would have said was impossible. Mm-hmm. Uh, Trotsky jo- switched over from Mensheviks to Bolsheviks, um, and so, so that was always held against him that he hadn't been a Bolshevik all along. So you had then. Uh, then Lenin died in the 90, early 1920s. Well, he had a stroke that put him out of action, and then he died. So the two contenders for power in the what had been, used to be called the Bolshevik Party, it had changed its name to the Russian Communist Party uh, in 1919, I think. Um, and um, the two contenders for power were Stalin and Trotsky. And um, they had different issues. Uh, Trotsky was more actively revolutionary. Stalin was more, let's build up socialism in Russia, in the Russian Empire. But the, so there have been Trotskyists ever since then, and they're people who were critical of the Soviet regime, but basically held to all the ideas of Lenin and Trotsky. When, when I was in England in, in the 1960s and 70s, you could say that the Communist Party was had about 30,000 members at that time. Uh, we now know heavily subsidized from Soviet Russia, like all communist parties all over the world, had, had embraced the parliamentary system. So it had become uh, democratic, in, mm-hmm. at least in its rhetoric and its, uh, its uh, political activity. It put up candidates for elections and so on. And this was regarded as a betray- betrayal by various Marxists. And the most prominent of these were 
the Trotskyists. So there were these Trotskyist organizations and they had a much smaller membership, but it was growing and it was they made a lot of noise and they had a lot of support among academics in the humanities. Well, in any university in, in England in the 60s and 70s, you would find that the Trotskyists were much more active than the Communist Party. In fact, the Communist Party was hardly evident at all. So the Marxists you would meet would usually be Trotskyists. Later on, some of them might be Maoists after the split between between uh, Russia and China. So, um, okay, so, so let me just stop you for a second. So this is interesting because it was the opposite. I had always assumed someone who referred to himself as a Trotskyite, it was to say, I'm not a Stalinist, meaning I don't favor, but you're saying, at least in this context, what it meant was I don't favor normal democratic procedures. I, I want there to be a revolution and it's a sellout if you're just a mere communist. Well, you know, the thing is, if you talk to one of these people, mm-hmm. they would say they what they would say would be, it would be wonderful if we could just vote in socialism, but the capitalists won't let us do that. So we've got to have it. We've got to have a violent insurrection to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so that that would have been the view. Uh, of course, we know from the from the the from the model of Soviet Russia that um, they didn't have majority support. So it wasn't a question of we got majority support, we could vote it in, uh, but unfortunately we have to have a revolution. In fact, of course, there are, what the Bolsheviks did when they seized power was they cancelled the plans for a constituent assembly, in other words, an elected body that would mm. set up the new constitution. Uh, because there had been free elections in Soviet Russia uh, and the Bolsheviks were a small minority, mm-hmm. although, although they were predominant in the towns. Because, of course, 80% or more of Russia was countryside um, mm. at that time. Uh, so it's a, it's a complicated question. But but the, generally speaking, if you talk to these Trotskyists, it was part of their zealous affirmation that there had to be a violent revolution. Mm-hmm. And if you said, why does there have to be a violent revolution? They would say, oh, the capitalists are sure to suppress us uh, if we try to do it through the vote. So we've got to be ready for a violent revolution. Right. Okay. Okay. Interesting. Now, you also said something a minute ago that I hadn't heard before, but just I think it's interesting to amplify that in a, the, in Marx's original vision, like if you had asked him, where is communism going to first you know, come to the fore, mm-hmm. he would have probably said like Germany. Not, it, certainly he would not have said Russia. Yeah, he, I mean, he, uh, he would have said the United States. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Because it would be the most advanced capitalist right. country. Uh, so he would say the United States, Britain, France, Germany. That was absolutely accepted by Marxists. And even when Lenin seized power in late uh, 1917, the, the Bolsheviks defended their seizure of power because all the other Marxists said, this is wrong. You shouldn't be seizing power. We've got to let capitalism develop and let democracy develop. And then socialism will be some point in the future. But what Lenin said was, well, there is going to be a revolution in the West very soon. And of course, it did look, there were some grounds for this in Germany. Mm-hmm. There was a revolutionary uprising in 1919 in, in Germany. So, you know, there was a big revolutionary uh, socialist movement in Germany. And uh, it's it, looking back, it's quite wrong to think it could have succeeded. Uh, it wasn't strong enough. But mm-hmm. um, uh, this is what the Bolsheviks said. So there was this transition from the Marxist view that capitalism must develop the forces of production and then you would get socialism or communism and and the, the new Bolshevik view. But it came in in stages. And the first stage was that the Bolsheviks said, well, the revolution in the West is going to come to our aid. Uh, that's going to happen soon, uh-huh. in a, within a year or two. 
they really thought it was going to happen within a year or two. And then part of the reappraisal in 1921, when they introduced what was called the new economic policy, where they, instead of trying to abolish money, they, they sort of accepted the existence of money and, and gave enter- state enterprises some kind of commercial responsibility. That was it, be- the beginning of the recognition that this Western revolution just wasn't going to happen. Uh, they were on their own, mm-hmm. uh, and this was a big shock to some of them. They, they you know, they, uh, they, they, they were definitely. Um, it was a big readjustment in their outlook. Okay, great. So let me just circle back. So n- with this issue of the terminology, so nowadays, if I'll put it to you this way, just just to get your your take, what if somebody said, "Oh, I'm I'm a socialist, but I'm not a communist." What would they mean by that distinction? Well, if they were a Trotskyist, what they would mean would be that they wouldn't defend any of the horrible things that were done by the Soviet Union after Trotsky was expelled. Mm-hmm. Um, they would do. They would defend the horrible things that were done by the Soviet Union before Trotsky was expelled, like uh-huh. the the crushing of the Kronstadt uh, strike, for example. They would defend that. But then, once Trotsky was out of the way. From then on, all the horrible things like the slave labor camps, they would say that's because the wrong group took power. Mm-hmm. And um, if they're strict Trotskyists, they wouldn't accept that it had become capitalist, but they would say it was a, the official term is a degenerated workers' state. So pretty degenerated, I would say. Uh, so that would be their view. I mean, most people who say they're socialists and communists uh, these days don't really know much about this. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, it's it's slipping into the mists of antiquity. <laughs> um, and people like me have spent many, many hours uh, finding out about all this, finding that some of our knowledge is, is um, becoming obsolete. But um, one of the things I do think, by the way, this this relates to something current. There's a lot of talk about a revival of socialism in the United mm-hmm. States. I think this is overhyped and probably non-existent. And if, if it does exist, it's it's probably um, exaggerated. Mm-hmm. Uh, and my reason for thinking that is that socialism has generally been in bad odor in the United States, but not in Europe. Mm-hmm. So, for instance, in Britain, where I grew up, uh, there was a part, of the, the, one of the two main parties was the Labour Party, and the Labour Party uh, proclaimed itself to be a socialist party. Um, and although they had did they did a lot of nationalisation when they took power in 1945, when they came back later, they didn't do much nationalisation, and nobody expected that the Labour Party would ever seriously think about nationalising most of industry or anything like that. Uh, basically, the, the Labour Party and the Conservative Party, uh, in this long period of consensus in Britain, accepted what was called the mixed economy. You know that there mm. would be there would be a private sector and there would be a public sector, and which uh, and which uh, which what would be handled by which of these sectors would be a matter of looking at each case on its merits. That mm. was the, that was the sort of uh, and there would be a welfare state. But obviously, the welfare state uh, has to there has to be good housekeeping, and it mustn't be too extravagant and too generous because that would mm-hmm. bankrupt the country. So that was the kind of consensus in Britain. So people uh, at that time who were members of the Labour Party would say, "Yes, I'm a socialist," mm-hmm. and you would say, "What does that mean?" And they would say something like, "Oh, more fairness, uh, bigger welfare state." Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, that kind of thing. So the word socialism 
in Europe, in practice for most people, came to mean the mixed economy Mm -hmm. or capitalism with modifications. That didn't happen in the U.S. because there wasn't a big socialist party. Um, The Democratic Party was just as much opposed to socialism in words as the Republican Party. Uh, So so socialism had a radical and nasty sound to American ears. Mm -hmm. What I think has happened in the recent years is that that has changed and verbally people are ready to accept socialism just like they accept it in Europe. It doesn't mean if you were to, if you were to go out and preach tomorrow uh, <clears throat> to members of the Democratic Party that the government should immediately nationalize every bit of industry, uh, uh, the majority wouldn't support you. Uh, now, um, the, the, there have been people all along in the Democratic Party, and even the Republican Party for that matter, who've been what we would call in Europe socialists, uh, but um, they wouldn't use the word social, socialism right. mm-hmm. because it wasn't a vote catcher. It didn't catch. It didn't win votes. Uh, but so there's a, been a change in rhetoric. Um, I don't. I don't. I don't see any actual. In fact, one of the striking things about t- today's left is it's not very interested. Comparative compared to the 1930s, mm-hmm. which I've studied in detail. Um, one of the thing, one of the things about today's left is it's not very interested in economic issues compared with the 1930s. In the 1930s, it was all important, uh, planning the economy, and it was it was assumed by the left in the 1930s, of course, that if you planned the economy, you'd have much greater abundance of of goods for people, uh, every, so everybody would be better off. Today, that doesn't nobody believes that really. Even people like Bernie Sanders, who sometimes talk as though they believe it, don't really believe it, or it's not very important to them. Right. Uh, so today you have all this um, interest in sexism and racism and all these issues that um, uh, that are extraneous to the question of socialism, really. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, so that's a good place to – let me come back to your essay here. So you, you were saying that um, – so again, folks, this is his essay, The Market Socialist Predicament. You say, recent writers often point out, sometimes with evident puzzlement, that Nicholas Pearson, Enrico Barone, Mises, and Hayek did not, in their arguments over the practical feasibility of market and non-market socialism, make much of the question of incentives. This was not, however, an oversight. And so do, do, you, do you remember what you're talking about there? Yeah, is that yeah, Okay, yeah. so can you go ahead and elaborate? So, so why, yeah, well, so partly the I, point is, what was the, what, I, the argument? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, back in the 1960s, when I was a devout Marxist, called myself a socialist, had arguments with people every day, spoke in Hyde Park. You know, in Hyde Park, there's this famous speaker's corner where anybody can get up on a soapbox and they soon attract a crowd and they can say whatever they like. So I spoke in Hyde Park in favor of socialism uh, quite a lot. And the objection you would get from people in fact, it was the only objection you would ever get from people to putting forward this idea of socialism was it's against human nature. Mm-hmm. And if you said, what do you mean it's against human nature? They would come up with an incentives argument. And one of the things that was very interesting to me in 1970s about the Mises argument, economic calculation, is it's, it's not an incentives argument. Now, since then, I've come around to the view there is something in an incentives argument. It's not totally worthless, but it's but it's uh, difficult to evaluate because uh, what the socialists would say is, well, under different conditions, people would have different motivations. That gets into an argument about human psychology, and it's really a difficult 
argument to resolve, mm-hmm. um, although you can point to practical examples. But uh, still, it's a difficult a- argument to resolve, whereas the Mises argument about economic calculation says nothing about people's motivations. It says people can be as motivated as you like. They can be fanatical. They can be absolutely devoted to um, the, 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 the common good and wanting to do the right thing economically to increase production and satisfy everybody's wants, they won't be able to do it if there isn't a functioning price system. Um, and in order to have a functioning price system, it turns out you have to have private property. So, so that contradicts the socialist goal of common ownership of the means of production. There has to be private ownership of the means of production if you want cell phones and, uh, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, um, plasma TVs and comfortable housing and so on, all the things that people actually do want and constantly tell you all over the world that they really want. Uh, if you want all those things, you have to have private property and a market economy. So that's a different kind of argument. You don't get into, a que- into any questions about human psychology. So the people who put forward um, there were people before Mises, but Mises put it very eloquently in 1920, while the Russian Civil War was going on, and that was very much in his mind. Mises said, uh, it doesn't matter how much people want socialism, and it doesn't matter uh, how, how much they want to do good and, how, and what their motivations are, they cannot, they cannot get socialism. And so he said socialism is impossible. Now, to, to modern ears, that has a kind of strange ring to say socialism is impossible when it's all around us, you know, what do you mean it's impossible? What was in Soviet Russia? You know, uh, I mean, the point, I think that what, what Mises was actually getting at was uh, if you abolish private ownership of the means of production, there will be a big drop in output. That's what he really meant. <laughs> um, but um, what that means is that socialism is impossible because socialism, as it was conceived in the 1920s and 30s involved abolishing private ownership of the means of production and abolishing the market economy insofar as it applied to production. Okay, great. So just in terms of the, I, I realize we ha- we should probably define what market socialism is. So Mises has this pretty strong claim in 1920 article that, you know, there can be no rational allocation of resources in a socialist commonwealth. Right. You know, they'd be groping in the dark. You know, as you say, it's not a matter of incentives. Even if all the comrades want to do, you know, snap at attention, commander, what should I do for for the common good? The the planners don't know. Even ex post, they can't look back and say, yes, that was a good use of resources because they have no way of, you know, comparing inputs and outputs. There's no common denominator. And so then people like Oscar Langa and uh, Abba Lerner come along and they gave what we now call the market socialist response. And they said, oh, no, 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 you didn't just prove the case for capitalism because the central planners could just announce a vector of price, let's call them prices in quotation marks, you know, ratios of exchange for resources against each other and tell the the people operating the factories under the socialist system, act as if you're maximizing profit, even though you're not, you don't have shareholders. And there there you go, we solve the problem using the tools of, you know, Walrasian economic analysis, so ha ha. And I remember Hayek was pointing out, he said, okay, I'll, I'll go ahead and, you know, deal with this, but let's step back and realize how how much ground you guys just gave up. Because as you were saying, David, the original appeal of socialism was we don't need to have accountants and grubby bookkeepers. That's all, you know, right. tools of dirty capitalists. Let's just produce, you know, for the people. Let's not, yes. and now you're telling us, oh, we have to have a certain, you know, internal accounting. It's just the, you know, the central planner's accounting. It's not based on, you know, third-party uh, accountants. So 
and you were saying like the dream was originally, and you, I guess maybe this is why you personally had the honesty to admit, wait a minute, this is serious, is if you thought socialism meant a world without money, no, you, you realize, no, we do need something very much like money. It just maybe not mm -hmm. distributed the way would happen under a laissez-faire market economy. Right, right. I mean, I don't think that Mises' argument about socialism proves the case for laissez-faire. It right. just proves that you need a functioning market and therefore you need some degree of market freedom and you do need private ownership of the means of production. Uh, now, that so the present system, like the system we have today in the United States, is obviously very far from laissez-faire, but it doesn't collapse into, into total chaos. It doesn't become Venezuela. And part of the reason one of the preconditions and necessary conditions for that is that there is a functioning market economy. And uh, I, I always put the emphasis on the word functioning because you can have a uh, functioning market economy where the government says there is no functioning market economy and you can have an absence of a functioning market economy where the government says uh, there is a functioning market economy. You've got to look at what actually happens on the ground, so to speak, to determine whether there is a functioning market economy. So that's what I would say about that. Uh, so going back to the point I was making, you know, this is very, very different from talking about incentives and human nature and all that. So uh, that's the refreshing thing about it. Right. right. And I also remember I was reading that, you know, the, when Mises wrote this and, and so forth, like obviously they were doing this before socialism on a grand scale had been tried. I mean, it had just been been starting. And and so they didn't have that. And they, I remember the, the socialist theorists would say, in response to conservative right-winger types who are, who are saying, oh, socialism won't work, who's going to take out the garbage? You know, who's, who's going to be the garbage man in a socialist commonwealth? If everyone gets right. the same, you know, right. isn't everyone going to want to be the librarian or the brain surgeon? You know, what, who's going to want to do the dirty jobs? Right, right. And I guess part of the response from the socialist theorists, you know, again, like in the 1800s and early 1900s, would be to say, well, yes, we agree people right now are very self-centered and money-grubbing. But that's because you have to be like that in a capitalist world. Otherwise, you right. die. Right. And so that's that's not human nature. That's human nature. If you grew up in a capitalist, horrible system of dog-eat-dog, dog, if you were born into a socialist utopia, you know, you wouldn't think like that. You would just grow up, right. oh, right. dabble in right. some art, and then I'll go do this, and then I'll do a math theorem, and then I'll go, you know, uh, help help some people, some toddlers put on their shoes. And that that's be how, how great everything will be. And so it, you couldn't just appeal to incentives because the socialists were saying right. although you know and, and i still think i think that argument you know i think economic calculation is a much superior way to talk to really convince socialists mm -hmm. uh than uh, than than incentives and in human nature but i must say as i look at historical events it's very striking how quickly the um the attempt to get people to behave in a um, community-loving manner, breaks down. And I think we've had a reminder of that recently with um, uh, where um, Nancy Pelosi goes and gets her hair done. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it didn't take six years for this for this uh, corruption to eat into the system. Mm -hmm. You know, you have a system where there's these people who rule and they're making everybody not go to get their hair done. And then but they personally make an exception. And the same thing happened here in Chicago with uh, Lori Lightfoot. You know, she did exactly the same thing. You mm -hmm. know, she went to get her hair done 
Uh, and when this came out, and she said, well, I, I represent the city. I have to look my best. Uh, she's mm. the mayor of Chicago. Um, and, um, you know, the, um, and the, 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 the case in Britain where the architect of this whole lockdown insanity, uh, a man named Neil Ferguson, uh, actually not only traveled across a city uh, to meet his um, paramour, but she was married, so they were engaging in intimate uh, uh, activities, and then she was going back to her family. Um, <laughs> and he was the he was the, the he was the um, the mastermind, so to speak, who dreamed up this whole idea that we would have millions of deaths unless we locked everything down. Um, and you know, so, but anyway, my point is, it's uh, it's very quick. Mm-hmm. Uh, that that um, uh, that people revert to type, and that 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 you do have occasions in history, like in Barcelona, uh, when the left took over, and this is part of my interest in George Orwell. You know, went to Barcelona mm-hmm. to fight for the for the um, the left. Um, uh, uh, you know, the, there was a period where. Uh, they made this big display about everybody being committed to the common good. And even the prostitutes, you know, were communalized and all that kind of thing. Um, and But the whole the whole thing uh, didn't last six months. You know, it, it didn't last six weeks, apparently, uh, before, the, before the rampant self-interest started to intrude. Mm-hmm. Um, so... Um, you know, I'm, I'm much less, and of course you have similar things in Cuba, where after, you know, back going back to ni- uh, 1960, um, <clears throat> uh, when Castro took over, uh, you see this uh, wonderful ideas about everybody working for the common good. That's that's so indefinite and so lacking in concreteness. Uh, it doesn't give you a clear signal. And so in a way, the lack of uh, clear economic rationality, the lack of economic calculation, it reinforces the, the self-interest motive. Right, right. Because if because if you don't have a clear signal as to what you're supposed to do, by default you will do what's in your own best interest. <laughs> right, right. Let me. Um, so in your essay here, I think I, you had this analogy that I thought worked really well. So again, folks, he's David was right. He's writing about the you know the market socialists in modern times now, and you know in, in the wake of this calculation argument that's that's pretty powerful, and at the very least you know pushes the socialist theorists back on his heels. Here, I'll, I'll just go ahead and read it, and then I'll let you elaborate on it. So again, you're talking about now what's the fate of the the market socialists or what's what the predicament they're in. You say, let me appeal to a far-fetched analogy. There are Christian ministers who come to the conclusion that Jesus was never really born of a virgin, did not really change water into wine or wither the fig tree, and did not rise from the dead. As long as there are a good number of literalists who do believe all these stories, the free-thinking ministers have some significance, but it seems plausible Without the existence of a large body of believers who accept the Jesuit miracles literally, the free-thinking ministers would not be able to maintain a substantial church for very long. They are always on a journey from Christian belief to its abandonment, even if most of them never quite reach that destination. Very roughly, we might say that this is so because the story of Jesus changing water into wine fits into a doctrine which has a power to convince, compel, and motivate. In Dawkinsian terms, it is a robust meme. The denial that this miracle occurred, however, draws most of its vigor as a meme from the fact that lots of people still believe the miracle did occur. Okay. And so then you're, so you're using that as an analogy for this original mm-hmm. Marxist vision of right, a world right. without money. Yeah. And so you're saying, so in your analogy, of course, right. That the free thinking minister who calls himself Christian, but says, no, he didn't really do all those miracles, mm-hmm. but you know, the sermon on the Mount, that's some good stuff. You're saying that's kind of the person who's now a market socialist 
and saying, yeah, yeah, yeah and, we can't and, get rid and, of money. And, and as, as the people who believe in real socialism disappear, and I maintain mm. they still are disappearing, uh, the people who sort of say, oh, yeah, let's have market socialism, um, they lose significance and uh, and no longer becomes um, they no longer become an important force, even intellectually. Mm-hmm. And, and partly because there's nothing inspiring about the market socialist position, right? Right. right. Well, that's classic it. Yeah. Marxism. I mean, they're yeah. accepting. I mean, it, it, the the difference between market socialism and heavily regulated capitalism isn't is pretty difficult to to spot. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we have heavily regulated capitalism, so uh, uh, so why get passionate about market socialism? Right. Exactly. Yeah. Because yeah, the original, like you said, the original appeal, the thing that would inspire young people is. Let's get rid of markets. Let's get rid of money. And, mm-hmm. you know, the idea that business is going to produce based on who turns over the most number of dollar bills, that's repugnant to people. Yes. And so to, to say, oh, we're going to have socialism and you still are going to have money and, you know, firms are still going to trade iron ore based on exchange ratios and we'll call them prices. Like, it's pretty soon like this looks kind of like capitalism, except the government owns everything. You know, it's almost. Right. Yeah. Hey, everyone. Let's just take a break from the discussion for me to mention, if you like what you're hearing and you want to hear it more frequently, that I encourage you to support the show. For details, go to bobmurphyshow.com slash contribute. Thanks. Okay, why don't we, uh, if you are right with this, talk about, and I can't find it here. Oh, yeah. So the, the title of this essay is What Follows from the Non-Existence of Mental Illness? And so there you're talking about Thomas, is it Saz? Am I saying his name correctly? Saz, yeah, so yeah. I think Saz, yes. Yeah. And so he, you know, his famous, I think it was called the, the myth of mental illness. And so he, uh, he famously, so it was a two-pronged thing. And that's why I thought your essay was interesting. You were trying to disentangle them or to show these are separate things. Mm-hmm. On the one hand, he was, of course, saying nobody should be locked up in a state psychiatric ward against his will. That's monstrous. That's, you know, medieval, barbaric. Right. Um, and he has some funny lines about like, hey, if you were locked up in a state mental ward, you go crazy too, you know, that kind of stuff. Right. Um, but then he also has aside this famous position of the myth of mental illness where he's saying, in, you know, an actual illness is something where you can point to something in the body, you know, a physical problem. Whereas w- when we say mental illness, all it really means is people are acting in weird ways, ways that, you know, most of us find incomprehensible. That's not an illness. And so, so what, what, what is your position in, in this essay that you're taking? Well, um, you know, I think a part of the background here is that SARS grew up at a time when uh, psychoanalysis was dominant. Uh, that is to say there was a, a Freudian, you might call it a Freudian church. Mm-hmm. And you see this uh, like in the, um, in the, I only saw the first couple of seasons of the show, um, Mad Men. Uh, but you see there that, if you go for therapy, it's Freudian therapy. There is mm-hmm. nothing else. Mm-hmm. I mean, there were there were a few other things, but not more than ninety percent of it. It's just Freudian therapy, and there's a right. there is a sort of established church of Freudianism, um, and then there are people who are uh, experimenting at the fringes uh, with this um, uh, with this Freudian doctrine. And South grew up in in the period where psychoanalysis was dominant, and the psychoanalysts. The Freudians, the Jungians, the Adlerians, the the followers of Horney, uh, Eric Erickson, people like that, who in their day were very famous, they were they were very insistent that mental illness was not a brain disorder; that it was uh, it was something to do with your childhood, with your with your unconscious feelings, with your mm-hmm. dreams, and all this. 
So, so the idea that you you could explain all mental disorders by something going wrong in the physiology of the brain was very alien to the thinking of of psychologists and psychotherapists, in, you know, back in the forties and fifties. Uh, and even in the 60s. Now, during the course of Saz's life, that all changed. So that now, the gr- now the great majority of people in uh, in mental health will tell you that if someone has, some- if they start to behave weird, uh, <laughs> it's because of something wrong with their brains. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you've got to find the right drug, uh, or you've got, you know, the extreme for- in extreme cases, you've got to operate on their brains. The idea that the talking cure, just talking to them, is going to do any good is out of favor. So in a way, this is a victory for SARS because he always he always said way back in the 40s and 50s, he was saying that um, the idea of a mental illness is a contradiction in terms because if it's mental, it's not an illness because mm-hmm. illness is something wrong with the body. Mm-hmm. It's a physical thing. Uh, and that that was was received very differently back then than it is today because today most mental health professionals would say well of course it's a it's a, a mental illness is a brain disease it's a brain malfunction mm-hmm. uh, so that so that's changed the context so um if you know if um, if if Saz is skeptical about there being such a thing as mental illness meaning not a physical illness but an illness of thoughts that's more readily accepted however uh, the people who accepted uh, want to say that crazy people have something wrong with their brains, which D- Sars doesn't want to say. Sars is committed to this old view uh, that um, crazy people are crazy for uh, motivational reasons or moral reasons or reasons of emotion and sentiment and not because of something wrong with their, their brains. So, it, so the whole context has, has changed for Sars. So what I, if you read Sars, He's written a lot of books, and they vary a lot, but some of them are extremely well-written and extremely funny um, Mm -hmm. and um, worth reading and filled with uh, insights. And, uh, you know, you could go on about the insights of Thomas Sars. He had tremendous insight into what goes on in the mental health field. But he, he put forward this sort of argument repeatedly that horrible things are done by psychiatrists or people with the, with the um, the blessing of psychiatrists, horrible things are done to people, uh, and it's a human rights problem. It's a problem of persecution, uh, persecuting people who are different or a bit weird, a bit eccentric, for no good reason. And Saz is saying, no, we shouldn't be doing this. And he combined this opposition to what he called psychiatric oppression with uh, skepticism about the idea of mental illness. And as time passed, this became skepticism about the idea of brain illness. Mm-hmm. So what I try to do in that little article is I try to sh- try to show that these two things are different. The question of whether uh, there are brain disorders that lead to to behavioral disorders and the question of whether we should lock people up because they're a bit weird um, mm-hmm. These are two different questions. Uh, they can be separated. Uh, you don't have to believe that all um, that, that there is no such thing as a brain disorder affecting people's behavior. You don't have to believe that in order to be opposed to involuntary commitment. So that's basically my argument there. And, and I argue, in fact, there is that <clears throat> psychiatrists uh, 
exaggerate the app. Everybody who has a specialty tends to exaggerate the application of that mm-hmm. specialty. So if, if you, if somebody said, if, if you have a hammer, then everything around you looks like a nail. Right. <laughs> um, and, uh, so, um, you know, so there is, that's a sort of common failing. Psychiatrists tend to think that everything that's wrong with people's behavior is due to a brain disorder. Well, I think that's, um, that's probably false in 90% of cases, but there is an irreducible <laughs> number of cases where mm-hmm. it seems to me there's no reason, no scientific reason to reject the idea that people can have something go wrong with their brain uh, that affects their behavior. And one, and one of the simple arguments why that's likely is that we know that that can happen with various chemical substances, which you ingest either voluntarily or involuntarily, and they affect your personality, your behavior, uh, and your thoughts, and so on. So it's so it's a, not much of a leap to say that this could happen spontaneously because something goes wrong with the mi- minute adjustment of the physiological processes in your central nervous system. So uh, I think there are such cases, um, and there are a small minority of those cases which psychiatrists uh, would recognise as as uh, what pay what puts their kids through college. Um, but um, nonetheless, there is an irreducible number of such cases. So that's my view. I think that SARS was literally wrong in saying that um, when he said that when he said that um, mental illness is a myth, uh, he had a good point because mental illness was taken to when he first put that forward in 1960, um, he he um, mental illness was was thought of as something that was not due to just something going wrong with your brain, a chemical change in the brain. That was definitely ruled out by most mental health people. So the idea that that it's it's a sort of confused term, mental illness, uh, is right. However, we can translate mental illness into mental symptoms from brain cause, physical causes in the brain. And then it's not obviously wrong. Uh, you know, if we say that somebody has a brain disease now, the vast majority of these brain diseases are purely hypothetical. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, they are they are conjectured. Uh, they have not been demonstrated. Um, no one, no, you know, there is no test that you can give people which will say this person is is uh, depressed. There's no, you, you, you have to talk to them. And if they say, well, I keep waking up wanting to commit suicide, you say, well, that's a bit of evidence that they're depressed. Right, uh, right. But you can't actually look at their brains or look at their blood serum or anything like that. There is no test. Right. Um, uh, so to that extent, my, uh, uh, Saz is right. Uh, it's, it's, doesn't ha- it's not quite like cancer. You know, you go and you've got some lumps and uh, they find, oh, yeah, sorry, you've got cancer. Uh, this is what the outlook is. Um, you know, uh, th- that's medicine. Uh, but the, a lot of psychiatry is, is very, very speculative. Um, and um, uh, <clears throat> one of the, this is no, this is nothing to do directly with this. It's just a, a spin off from it. But one of the things that's happened in the past, I would say, 20 to 30 years is what SARS calls pharmocracy. In other words, big drug drug companies taking over institutions and um, and and trying to influence the way people think about medicine and about mental illness and all these things. Um, you know, there was there was this promising uh, beginning in behavioral modification. You know, you you take a a psychiatric uh, institution that has a lot of hardened alcoholics. And you um, 
you give them incentives. Uh, you give them all the alcohol they want and you give them incentives. You give them rewards if they cut back on their consumption of it. And what they found was this works brilliantly. Uh, it works with everybody, 100% of cases, to some extent. Uh, in other words, the idea that alcoholics have lost control is wrong. Mm -hmm. Alcoholics have not lost control. Uh, and people, heroin addicts have not lost control. Uh, they're, in, they're in control, but they just like taking the drug. <laughs> right. um, and if you give them incentives, you, the incentives could be um, a bigger room to live in, more better food, more spacious uh, uh, surroundings, and so on. You find they always respond to incentives. Uh, and that whole development uh, of behavior modification by incentives was blasted away by the drug companies dumping all this funding into uh, finding ways in which the latest chemical substance that they want to patent uh, is going to change your life and solve all your problems. Uh, and so we have the, today, we have this whole idea. If you look at TV, you know, the network mm -hmm. TV, it's constant, it's constant drug stuff, you know, uh, mm -hmm. they're, they're taking over the world. So a bit of a hyperbole. Um, but, um, uh, you know, this is, this is part of the way the world we live in, where there is this um, strong tendency of the pharmacrats to have us believe that everything that can go wrong in your life can be cured by operating on your brain. Well, that's not true. You know, there are lots of things that uh, go wrong in people's lives that have to do with their choices, with their morality, with their values, and things like this. And this is one. This is the central message of SARS, and it's very important, uh, and it will always be important. So I don't think that's been refuted at all. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, there's... I don't know if he explicitly linked to this, but I did like, I know that um, there were a lot of conservative writers like in the 1990s, I, I remember this, maybe the late 80s as well, where they were recoiling against the move to sort of explain criminal activity as being due to mental illness. And they were saying that like that's demeaning to the to the criminals. Like you're taking away their agency and just no, they they made bad choices and right. you know we can try to explain environmental factors and blah blah blah. But you know, to just to just dismiss it and say, oh, the reason he did that is because, you know, there's yes. something sick with his mind that, you know, right. that that was actually you weren't that wasn't therapeutic. That was like horrifying to to do that. Like like no treat him like a man and put him in prison. You know, yes. you do the crime, you do yes. the time. And, you know, treat him with some respect and dignity by locking him up and saying you're a criminal, not, right. oh, there's right. something wrong with your mind. Let us sh fill you with drugs to fix you. Yeah. Right. Um, and it often, it often mm -hmm. leads to um, uh, directly to the withdrawal of civil liberties from people. You know, the, some, some guy is, uh, is, is uh, convicted of um, some violent crime, uh, mm -hmm. but the, psych the court believes the psychiatrist's view that this is due to a mental illness, so he's locked up forever because right. you can never get out unless unless uh, the, the uh, right. psychiatrist says that you're cured. And that's isn't that, that, yeah, forever. that's what happened in uh, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, right, with Jack right, Nicholson's right. character? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, exactly, yeah. Um, so just so I understand your position, so I agree with you, logically speaking, they are those are distinct things in Saws, perhaps, you know, would be being a bit loose by at least giving the reader the impression that those two things went right. hand in hand. So, so do you actually, I think if I heard you correctly, you're saying, yes, you, you agree with him that in a lot of cases it is overblown, but maybe he's a bit too strong when he says like, there really is no such thing as mental illness that you think for, no, for some of these cases, you're fine saying, yeah, that, that suite of activities or behaviors, I'm okay if we label that as 
whatever, paranoid schizophrenia. And even if I can't point to some abnormality in your brain scan, like that is something that's, you know, as a, as a, as yeah, a clinical I mean, thing. I mean, it seems to me, well, yeah. I mean, my view is that we can conjecture that there is some brain disease, even if we can't demonstrate it. And of course, that has to be uh, put up against all the other possible explanations for someone's behavior. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, in so there would be some cases where it'd be very difficult to explain some changes in somebody's personality, sudden changes, and uh, uh, except on the basis that something is happening to them physically. Um, so I, I would say that, um, see, SARS tends to argue that if you can't, SARS is a, SARS is a, um, a follower of the guy in, back in uh, 19th century Germany um, his name is is escaping me. I'm having a Joe Biden moment. Uh, but uh, the guy who um, came up with this idea that if if it, I don't think he actually said this, but this is the way SARS interprets him, um, that uh, if you can't find it in a corpse, it's not a real illness. Mm-hmm. Now you can't find schizophrenia or bipolar disorder in a corpse. Mm-hmm. There is mm-hmm. a, there is no way. Uh, you can't find shopping addiction or sex addiction, addiction in a corpse. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and um, Sars t- sort of says, well, uh, if you can't find it in a corpse, then it's not a real disease. I would say, well, that's a good place to start. Uh, but, I mean, I sometimes have migraines. Uh, susceptibility to migraine is not something you can find in a corpse. But mm-hmm. that doesn't make me assume that my migra- migraine has uh, mental or um, emotional causes. Mm-hmm. Uh, it could. It, it's just that it has a physiological cause that we don't know about yet. Right. Uh, well, what's also interesting too, though, is your in your essay you brought up the fact that this term illness in modern usage, yes, we associate that. We think that oh, that term originally came from medical science, but you're saying no, actually. Like, you know, it's an ill wind that blows and that sort of right, thing. Like right. historically, yeah, the, yeah. the word ill wasn't just confined. Meant something yeah. unfortunate or mm-hmm. nasty that happened to people. Or yeah. you had ill fortune befell you or something. Right, right, yeah. Right. So so you're you're pointing out that actually it's it's not right or or there's no reason grammatically to to assume that mental illness is per se, you know, a contradiction or something right. that it, it could be in other yeah. words. We, it doesn't even need to be the case right. that in order to prove that what's now currently diagnosed as a mental right. illness, we have to have something in the the brain. Like you just say, no, even if, you know, just in terms of behaviors and whatever, th- there, there's no reason a priori you have to rule out the possibility of labeling a certain class of, right. of behaviors. Right. As, uh, to, be absolutely, yeah. to be absolutely fair to SARS, I think he would agree to all that. Mm-hmm. But he would say, since the development of modern medicine, we have a very precise definition of illness or disease, right? Uh, and uh, and people are going to tend to, in, if you say there is illness or disease, people are going to interpret it in that as though it relates to that very sure. precise modern mm. uh, medical uh, t- terminology. When in fact, it may not. Uh, right, especially uh, like when it comes to like drug legalization, a lot of sort of, you know, leftist progressive types who want to legalize it will say things like, hey, let's treat dr- drug addiction as an illness, not as right, a crime. Right, yes, yeah. yeah. And so clearly right. that what they, they don't mean yeah. Yeah, they treat it as treat, ba- uh, bad behavior. Trump as an illness. Right. Yeah. <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> okay. Um, let's see if I would like to talk to you about your essay. Yes, gambling is productive and rational. And this was one in the, in the introduction of the book, David 
uh, R. Henderson said how he really liked this essay. So this was the first one I read. And it was good. I had assumed I was going to know all the arguments you would bring up in this, you know, because I thought I was going to agree with you. But so everything I would have said, you said, but you said some stuff that I wouldn't have thought of. So this is a good, this is a good essay. Um, So what's the, you you push it back against Paul Samuelson. So he sort of leveled the standard. It's ironic coming from him as a professional economist, but people don't have any problem with, you know, going to, well, they have a problem, but people are more forgiving of, hey, you want to go to a bar and just drink a bunch and blow off some steam, or you want to go to a movie and watch a, you know, a mindless uh, comedy, that's fine. But if you go and spend money on average at the roulette table, or we, we you know, that's that's somehow unproductive and irrational. Right. And so that's that's your you're tackling that objection. And so, how did Paul Samuelson, if you remember, like you know, he he f- formulated it a certain way to try to show why there is something odd about, you know, gambling and why it's unproductive. I'm not sure I recall the precise terms that Samuelson used, but uh, what I pointed out was that you could apply this to all kinds of other things that people do. Um, And, um, uh, you know, that um, uh, I think I think he did it in terms of um, uh, the the, the, the the casino isn't adding anything. Yeah, I'm well, just, let me see if well, I can they find are, it. They are adding something. They're adding uh, a recreational um, uh, element that people enjoy going to the casino. So right there, you have. Um, I, I yeah. found it here. I was I, sorry. I wasn't trying to put you yeah. on the spot. Let me. So let me give you. So Paul Samuelson, in his once canonical textbook, said gambling quote involves simply sterile transfers of money or goods between individuals, creating no new money or goods. Yes, this so is a bit so like, yeah. sounds a bit like Aristotle, actually, and his, his right. uh, argument that usury has to be unnatural and therefore mm. evil um, because not, because nothing is created. Well, of course, uh, whether it's created is in the mind of the consumer, and the consumer begs to differ. <laughs> right. There is something. Um, I, I, I think. I think. Um, that goes on. This argument goes on several levels. I think there's a recreational element to gambling. People like to gamble, and people people could have a, a night gambling and uh, lose money, but um, that they regard that as money well spent because they've had a good time. So mm-hmm. that's one thing. Then there is the other aspect of gambling: is that um, you're hoping to make big winnings. Uh, and um, the interesting thing that one of the many points I make in that article is that if you look at this in reverse, in the reverse of this, of course, is insurance. Everybody thinks it's a gr- that you should have health insurance. And mm-hmm. if you don't want it, you should be compelled to have it because it's so good for you, even though it's not a fair bet very often. In other words, your chances of, of being ahead if you don't get health insurance are quite good. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, um, so what this means is that if you, if you're in favor of, uh, more health insurance, but you're against, uh, playing the lottery, it means that, um, it means that, uh, you, you penalize hope and you reward fear, uh, uh, because these two things are rather symmetrical. Um, um, and it, it, it's interesting to me some of the arguments that people use. You know, there is this woman who wrote, I remember now from that article, I quote the woman who wrote in the New York Times and said uh, that your chances of winning the lottery are less than your chances of being struck by lightning. Well, actually, as I point out, if you t- if you interpret this correctly, they're actually somewhat better 
but also, what does it mean to say your chances are less than being struck by lightning? Does that mean the person who puts this argument is against lightning rods? Uh, they don't think right. that lightning, being struck by lightning, is that important because it's such a an un- unlikely occurrence. Uh, obviously, uh, there is, you know, if you if you play the lottery, um, <clears throat> you are thinking, well, I might have a big win, and the knowledge that you might have a big win uh, is something that gives you a certain amount of satisfaction. Now, um, state lotteries only give back about fifty percent. If it was in the private free market, we know that it would be over ninety percent because we know that's those are the numbers from Vegas. You know that gambling basically returns more than ninety percent, more than ninety-five percent actually, and that's even after taxes goes back to the players. Uh, so, um, so we can be sure that you get a lot more. There'd be a lot more winnings with private lotteries. In mm-hmm. fact, everybody acknowledges that you cannot run a state lottery unless you outlaw private lotteries. Right, that was a um, great point you made. Yeah. Uh, and, um, uh, and, and, the, and of course, what that shows is the rationality of the gambler. The gambler would never pay, would never play in a, in a lottery where, they only, where, on average, they only get back 50% um, when they could play in a lottery where they get back 90%. Uh, you know, so one of the arguments is, well, the, the gambler is completely irrational. Well, no, the gambler is perfectly rational um, and uh, knows the odds very well. Mm-hmm. Um, and, it, you know, it always strikes me when people talk about the gambler's fallacy, for example. What they mean is the non-gambler's fallacy. <laughs> They're talking about a mistake that no gambler would ever make because gamblers are much more shrewd about, uh, about um, the odds in, right. in, uh, in these different games. Yeah, and so you make an argument, and you're, I'm glad you brought that up because I wasn't going to stress that that was a great – it was sort of an aside you had in the, in the essay, but pointing out that Everybody knows in a, if a state wants to run a lotto, you know, to give money to education or whatever, right. they have to outlaw the private sector ones because otherwise no one would play the state one because, you know, the odds would be better. So that's interesting. Um, you, so you're trying to motivate, and I, if I remember your argument, you said something like you're taking on the objections thing for those people who are saying it's necessarily irrational to play when they're not, you know, when, when you're the, the actuarial you know, you're, the, there's an expected loss when you buy one ticket. Right, right. That, it's not a fair bet in the terms of... So uh, you're taking that out, and it was an interesting thought experiment you had to try to show why, there, no, there's something wrong with just saying that argument too glibly. And you're saying, okay, suppose it were the other way around. Suppose for whatever reason, you know, the on average, if you paid a dollar for a ticket, your winnings were going to be a dollar ten. You know, just right. like in other words, the prizes were such that they were actually giving more because it was subsidized or whatever. Right. You said, so would that mean every single person in society would have to spend like all of his income just buying tickets? And you say, no, clearly right. that wouldn't be the quote rational and, and, thing to uh, do. And by the way, that's a real life example, because if you look at uh, typical state lotteries or mm-hmm. multi-state lotteries, as most of them are, um, uh, you if you get a, a few weeks where nobody wins, Right. It becomes a more than fair bet. In other words, the money paid out mm-hmm. and the next one is bigger than the, the expected value, as they technically call it, uh, of the bet. Uh, yeah. So you're actually – so the argument would be people should be compelled to uh, buy lottery tickets uh, when it's a more than fair bet, right? right. Um, on the, and that actually happens. It's not yeah, hypothetical. Yeah. Did it you – I read a – it was like I was a, I was a little kid and I read a, it was a Reader's Digest story once about that happened. I think it was New York State, but it might not – I might have the state wrong, but where, yeah, the, because it was like the Powerball and it kept rolling over, at one right. point it, it became rational. And, and so some investors got together and they farmed out all the combinations to various agents – 
to mm-hmm. go to the gas stations and whatever and to buy up every possible permutation, you know, right. to have every right. ticket covered. And then there was some funny thing where like one of the guys they sent out, something happened. And so they weren't fully covered. Like there were a few numbers they didn't have. And so, yes. oh no, yes. and you know, but they, they got it. So anyway, and then they changed the rules. Like somehow that, that was then was made illegal. Like you couldn't do that. And I don't know right. how they defined, right. you know, what the, what it was, but in any event, so in your, with your argument is you said, okay, so now if you grant that, that yes, some people would certainly go out and buy a bunch of tickets. Some might buy one or two or three, but clearly not everyone would be expected to mortgage his house and put everything into the lotto because now it has positive expected value and there would be a spectrum of people and you can just start lowering it. Suppose it was a dollar five, a dollar four, a dollar three. Suppose it's an even game and you could see how there's like the number of people who would do it would fall and so what we'd expect it to all go to zero, right? You know what I mean? So right. it was just a, gr- a good way to motivate and show how people have different preferences regarding risk and so forth. So that, that's, it was, I mean, that would, did I capture your argument correctly? Like that was just yeah, a way to yeah. illustrate. And, okay. and of course, another aspect of this is that playing the lottery is some, um, uh, I mean, I think I, in the uh, that article, I refer to it as the poor man's cattle futures. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, in other words, there are different ways of, um, of risking a small amount to to gain a bigger amount, and many of those are just not available to to very low income people, for for one reason or another. Right. Uh, so uh, Hillary Clinton didn't buy lottery tickets; she bought cattle futures. Of course, it was rigged <laughs> to <laughs> to make sure she won. Uh, but uh, but it, so it's very it, rational. <laughs> uh, so, but um, the thing is that you know, um, if you were a billionaire, I would say that you you would be very ill advised to buy to waste money thinking about lottery tickets. You've got other ways to speculate, but these these uh, these ways to speculate that are superior, you know, it, it, uh, are um, not available to low income people. Right, right. And then you ended this essay, and I thought this was pretty eloquent. You said lottery players hold that it's better to have played and lost than never to have played at all. Who's to say that they're wrong? So it was, anyway, I'm, I'm mm-hmm. plugging the book here for the folks at home that it's, uh, you know, not only do you make a lot of cogent arguments and things, but, you know, it's it's very well written. I appreciate that. So w- with the time we have here, why don't we, the last one I wanted to ask you about, of course, is the the taking the JFK assassination conspiracy seriously. This was a fun oh, one. Right. Mm-hmm. And so just to cut to the chase, you you you've run a lot on this and you you believe the Warren Commission yes. or or at least you believe their theory you don't, you don't necessarily yeah, believe I mean they made yeah. some mistakes but okay. um, the basic idea that it was Oswald acting alone I think is correct yes now, now let me I do have some specific questions but just to make sure I get the big picture right is it that you're saying there are no big problems with the the lone nut theory let's call it, or you think there are some serious problems but to you that's the best hypothesis because the other Hypotheses are so far fetched that you we can rule them out, and the only thing that's remaining is it, it. You know, it probably was Oswald, even though yes, it right. or do you think like no, the, all the main problems people have brought up, you think are are handled adequately? Yes, um, the title taking the taking the JFK assassination seriously. One of the reasons I gave it that title, and one of the reasons why the late Bill Bradford changed the title because that was too dull is that I wanted to bring out this idea that um, people who uh, who um, believe in the conspiracy theory, let's say, of the mm-hmm. Kennedy assassination, they're filled with uh, the zeal to uncover discrepancies in the official story. Uh, but they're not filled with zeal to uncover discrepancies in the conspiracy story. Uh, and 
what I, what I'm saying is, if you take this theory seriously, then you should look at the conspiracy story and and uh, with the same skeptical eyes as you look at the official story, uh, and then you find all kinds of problems with the conspiracy story. Mm-hmm. I mean, if there are it, it is it does boggle the mind the things that you would have to believe if you think it was a conspiracy, um, especially if you think it turns out it couldn't possibly have been. A conspiracy of a handful of people. It would have had to have been hundreds of people, highly placed mm. in the government. Uh, so that's all kinds of. Hey, hey, David, can I again? If it's not a big deal, yes. can you tilt your camera again because it it moved? Yes. It's, the Illuminati yes. don't want your uh, debunking to right, to right. get out. Well, yeah. I'm glad you reminded me because I am quite <laughs> proud of my chin. Um, and, <laughs> well, um, yeah, on this one, I want you to stick your chin out for me while we debate this. Uh, I'm always sticking my chin out. I'm surprised <laughs> more more people haven't hit it from time to time. But um, uh, but um, yeah, so um, uh, that, so that's one. Uh, I think if you look at what would have to be true, and the other thing, of course, is if you were going to assassinate Kennedy and you or you were an all powerful conspiracy with hundreds of people highly placed in the intelligence community, um, then. Why would you choose to do it in that particular way? That's one of my arguments, you know, mm-hmm. is that the, the idea, you know, uh, a lot of the discussion in the, and I've read a lot of, um, of uh, uh, conspiracy arguments, uh, a, lot of the, a lot of the arguments are about that, that there had to have been more than one shooter. Mm-hmm. So, there had to, the, so there must have been several shooters. That's what they try to argue. Um, uh, so... Why would conspirators choose to have the president assassinated in this way? In other words, multiple uh, uh, shooters in different locations around Dealey Plaza. Uh, that doesn't make any sense. It's not the way I would do it, uh, you know, I, if I was going to assassinate the president. As I say, one way to do it would be to get at one of the many hookers that JFK had in the White House and get them to slip him uh, some kind of drug that uh, that would be, and he would uh, probably it would never even be di- diagnosed as murder. <laughs> uh, right. So um, you know, there, it it just doesn't. I, I mean, I think the the um, the killing of the Pope in Godfather Three is a lot more like the way it would be done. <laughs> um, uh, you know, you don't you don't and you don't have an all powerful, very clever conspiracy doing some of the things that this conspiracy would have had to have done. I mean, for example, you ha- you have to suppose that if they were conspiring to do it, so they they set up this scenario where um, there are multiple shooters in different locations as the ca- as the car uh, comes uh, through Dealey Plaza, you, and basically you're going to blame Os- you're going to have Oswald as the patsy. First of all, Oswald get, gets clean away in the first couple of minutes. And goes to his mm-hmm. apartment and picks up a, a revolver with which he soon shoots a police officer who stops him on the street. Um, this is this is all difficult to fit in to this um, this idea that it was due to conspiracy and he was merely a patsy. But but also um, you know. Wait, hey David, can I stop you because yes. you're saying because I mean let me. So I think the you know the the pro conspiracy person would say, well no, the, you want to have a a fall guy because. If the president gets assassinated, the public's going to need to know who did it. We got to punish the person, right. so we have to hold up someone and say that's the person who did it. But your point is, you why didn't they? The guy. Right? Why you didn't they more the cleanly would be dead? And you, everybody right. would be happy. They say this guy uh, assassinated the president, but he was shot, and right. it would all be over. And, and so, for the person that says, "What are you talking about, Mister Steele or Doctor Steele?" That they. Uh, 
they did do that. That's what Jack Ruby's role was. You're, you're saying though, but it was really sloppy. Like why? Did right, you, but it, it could have been. It could have actually. I think if you were doing it really efficiently, you'd have him shot before the actual assassination. But he would. The story would be mm. he was shot just afterwards. Um, mm. And uh, you know, you don't let him. Ro- you don't let him roam around freely. <laughs> right. Um, mm. You know that's. Um, uh, yeah, because that, at the very least, he could get away. Right. If he's yeah, mm-hmm. if you don't know where he is, so yeah, if, if, the, if the whole thing hinges on this guy is going to be the person we pin it on, and we got to make sure he's nice and right. dead so he can't talk. Right. You, you certainly that's a loose end to have him run around. Is if you try mm-hmm. to imagine the conspirators planning this, they would have had to have planned not only for what happened, but for what might happen. Mm-hmm. So, uh, for example. Um, the idea that there would be someone shooting from the grassy knoll is absolutely crazy because you couldn't know that a dozen different people wouldn't have taken a photograph of the grassy knoll at that point. There were, you know, there were thousands of people around or hundreds of people around mm. anyway, and many of them had cameras. Um, so you would think, no, the grassy knoll, have you seen the grassy knoll? It's very exposed. It's a very mm-hmm. small area. Uh, it's not something, it's not a place where you can sort of take cover. <laughs> it's not like a sniper's <laughs> nest. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, right, you, you know, um, it, it, it's, um, it, 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 you would, you would plan, you'd plan it and you'd think, well, we can't we can't have someone on the grassy knoll. That's ridiculous. That's insanity because they could easily be spotted. They could easily be uh, photographed. They could easily be videoed. Although there weren't many video cameras back then, but still, mm-hmm. there was one. This is a, it's a Pruder film. I mean, one of the points I make right at the beginning of this article is that in the period where the conspiracy theory was incubating, mm-hmm. um, the the conspiracy theorists were demanding the release of this and that other piece of evidence because they thought it would show that it was a conspiracy. Now, as this evidence actually came out, it sh- it was only compatible with a single shooter who fired three shots, one of which missed. All the ballistic evidence supports that. All the eyewitness evidence, well, the eyewitness evidence is mixed, but the preponderance of eyewitness evidence supports that. Um, there's a whole lot of evidence that that has to be true. Um, you know, there is the fact that... Um, that Oswald did build this this book uh, um, sort of covering of books and did secrete himself in this corner at the window. There is the fact that he he did work alone on the sixth floor, um, and there is the fact that three people immediately below him. Uh, and you have to remember that the sixth floor, the part of the floor was missing, so there were actually gaps in the floor from the sixth to the fifth. And three three men below him heard the shots and heard the cartridge cases fall into the floor and two of them because the third one was left in the in the rifle um you know there's all this the huge preponderance of evidence that there were just three shots and one of them missed um but then uh so when all this evidence comes out uh then the, the the nature of conspiracy theory changed and it's and it said that Instead of saying, we want this evidence, we demand that this evidence be released, it's now all this evidence is fate. And that includes the Zapruda film. The Zapruda film quite clearly shows uh, that, um, that where the direction of the shot came from. Uh, and um, it came from the sixth floor of the book depository, nowhere else. Um, and, you know, so this once the Zapruda film is released, then 
this conspiracy theory, start saying that Spruder film is, has been tampered with. And then they realize gradually over the years that that's not enough. It's a complete fake. And uh, Zapruder was paid to make this fake movie, right? So this, so this is a big change mm -hmm. in the in the whole nature of the conspiracy theory, from saying we demand to see the evidence to saying, oh, now we've seen the evidence. All the evidence was faked. Okay, so let me just—I I don't want the listeners, of, you know, the frequent listeners of my show, to misunderstand. So a few several years ago, and unfortunately, David, I—it's been so long that I can't remember the details well enough to like go into battle with you against this. But I went, I read, you know, a few books on it. You know, Mark Lanes was one of them. And then, um, is it P Richard Posner? Is, is he mm -hmm. the one that I'm yeah. thinking? Of? Yeah. I read his. And then I went through, I was just going through a lot of the Warren Commission report. And I concluded at the time that the theory in the Warren report can't be what happened. There's inconsistencies. I didn't know what did happen or I didn't have a theory as to what did happen, but I remember thinking that, so I'm not, I'm not going to try to make that because again, I, I don't remember the details. So that I'm just saying this for the you know the listeners, um, right, right, right. so they know where where I'm coming from. What I thought was fascinating was I had come across a theory, and I saw you reference it in in your essay. So, so assume for the moment that that's true. Like, oh wow, there's these glaring problems with the Warren Commission report. There was clearly a cover up. You know, they they rushed the body out. They didn't have a standard autopsy, even though that's Texas state law. Blah blah blah, and. The one theory I saw that could explain all that without a sinister undertow was the idea that, oh, when the first shot rang out, the Secret Service guy panicked. He did what he normally, he would jump up on the car. Right. And as he was pulling his gun out, he accidentally shot Kennedy. Yes. And so if that's what happened, then well, I could yeah. see that would explain why to cover up because then, you know, that would be such an awkward thing. There is a book devoted to that and mm -hmm. it's called Mortal Error. Um, mm -hmm. It's very interesting Mm -hmm. um, because, um, one of the things it does, it, the person who wrote, well, it was, it was one of these things that was ghost written by somebody, somebody mm -hmm. had the theory who was a, uh, um, a secret service guy. And then the, but the, he had help writing it from a, from a professional writer. Uh, so I forget both their names right now. Mm -hmm. Um, but, um, uh, it is a very cogent theory and it, it is based on the idea that there was a mis an accident that, that uh, uh, the he, that a secret serviceman uh, fired his um, fired his gun. Uh, although uh, it's worth pointing out that even if this theory is completely true, Kennedy would have died of the other wounds apart from that. So mm -hmm. um, it's like a sort of um, uh, uh, redundant <laughs> to shoot him again. So well, so, but but well, anyway. Right, but my point yeah. is that that would be that would be one way to explain all of the suspicious government behavior and why the Warren report had right. inconsistent, you know, like, you know, why, why would they, you know, get two different autopsy or, or two different brain exams and stuff like that. That could explain all that stuff without it being, Oh, because there must've been this inner conspiracy to take out JFK. If that's well, what, you know, right. oh, well, that, that was so yeah. just the general way government bureaucracies behave. Mm -hmm. um, actually, one of the things about this, you know, when, this the FBI attempt, uh, uh, along with others, to frame Donald Trump for collusion with Russia. One of the things is that you get people like um, Sean Hannity saying, uh, "Well, ninety nine percent of FBI people are thoroughly um, 
thoroughly uh, beyond reproach and uh, completely uh, devoted to our well-being and they never do anything wrong well I think that's you've got an, uh, you've got this vast government bureaucracy that everybody agrees must be secret for it to fulfill its function right there <laughs> you've got mm. a you've got a you've got a, a sort of a natural petri dish for inefficiency and slovenliness and incompetence and uh, and um, and people's own uh, sort of personal vendettas and and uh, biases to affect what they're doing, so I don't think I, I don't think that all FBI ninety percent of FBI agents are pure as the driven snow or anything like that. And uh, you know that yeah, the FBI did all kinds of things that were not quite right. Uh, uh, but I, I, if they had done everything quite right, that would be very suspicious. <laughs> right. So let me just again to get to understand. I was surprised because you were you just said it here too, but let me go ahead and read it. You said. The Zapruder film, a 26-second movie of the assassination made by a spectator, Abraham Zapruder, used to be regarded on all sides as a record of fact. Aspects of this film were frequently employed to advance a conspiracy theory. Now it is accepted by almost everyone that the Zapruder film, taken at face value, corroborates the lone nut theory. And then most conspiracy theorists therefore claim the film to be either altered in detail or a complete fabrication. So that was interesting to me because... And I know you quote some people, so I, I know that that is some of them are alleging that. Mm-hmm. But for example, the, are you familiar with the comedian Bill Hicks? Yes, Do you know who he, slight, not so he's familiar is an exaggeration, but I know. Okay, about but you know who he is, yeah. So I mean, he's got a famous bit where he's talking about the and he says it's funny. He says like I went to the book depository and they have an exhibit there showing you know where Oswald you know the, on the sixth floor of the depository, and he said and you know and the exhibit was very accurate because Oswald wasn't there. You know, meaning in the exhibit, and so ha ha, you know. Mm-hmm. But he he does this long thing where he's like, and so the bull, you know, back into the left. He's doing the Zapruder film, and he's going like this, and saying, "Now, folks, the story is the bullet that made Kennedy's head go like that came from back there." When those of you who dabble in physics would think something doing this would come from up here. So, and, and when you're actually watching the film, I mean, it does look like Kennedy goes forward and then back. And right. I know in the JFK film, you know, the the Oliver Stone one they play that ad nauseum, that film. So aren't there some conspiracy theorists who think there's a Pruder film prima facie? Of course oh, yeah, it's showing I mean, a bullet coming their from... Argument, their arguments are a bit strange. I mean, if you if a bullet goes through someone's skull, what happens, I'm told by people who are experts in this mm. area, is that, uh, well, first of all, the exit wound's a lot bigger than the entry wound. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the, the head jerks in the opposite direction to the the exit wound which is like a jet propulsion thing you know that in other words it goes so it would go but if it was shot from behind it would go the head would jerk back that you know that's i think that's been duplicated in experiments okay it's theoretically correct uh so you know that's um that's completely covered by the by the science on this Mm -hmm. particular area okay so just to be clear you're saying that yes that iconic moment when you know it comes around he's already right and then goes right. like that you're saying that does make sense that that would be a bullet coming from behind yes, yes. okay yes. i just want to know what the claims are okay um let's see and then just another one of your claim in there you were saying for those who are trying to you know who think that oh lyndon johnson must have been in on it and they want to you know say oh it's because you know kennedy was the the peace candidate or whatnot and you're saying well gee at face value the only thing that we would say the conspirators got out of this was the civil rights legislation. Right. And so there, I mean, I I get what you're saying, but I mean, in fairness, like didn't rolling thunder happen afterward? Like in other words, 
couldn't you have said the war in Vietnam was vastly escalated after? Again, not that it proves that was the motivation, but well, uh, more but, happened under LBJ yeah. than just civil uh, rights legislation. We don't know that it wouldn't have been escalated under Kennedy. Right, but we don't know I mean, that civil rights legislation would have been The whole idea that, Ken- the whole idea that Kennedy was averse to the Vietnam War, I think, is a complete myth, you know. Um, it, 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 uh, um, and, and the conspirators would have had to have known what the outcome would be. Uh, you see, I think that uh, you you shouldn't con- you shouldn't credit the conspirators with knowledge of the future. Um, you know, nobody thought that it was. Uh, if, if I mean, it, you could say that from the conspirators' point of view, if they they wanted the people who want who were hawks on on Vietnam wanted a quick victory in Vietnam. You know, the, mm-hmm. nobody who was in favor of the Vietnam War wanted it to turn out the way it did. Uh, so uh, you know, just to have enough limited knowledge of the future to know that Kennedy, that Johnson would escalate more than Kennedy, if that's true, and there's no evidence that's true. Um, and it, w- one of the points I make is that all the all the Johnson advisors on that escalation were Kennedy men. They were all Kennedy men. Uh, you know, that um, this, this was not like, Johnson didn't come in and get a lot of different advisors on the military campaign in Vietnam. Okay. But anyway, it was a minor point that you were right. Right. If yeah. I took but you to I mean, be saying I, something yeah, I, like, I don't, I don't see that there was sufficient motive. And if and if and if there had been a sufficient motive, then my, one of my arguments was, uh, why not see if Kennedy was reelected? You know, you had less than a year to go, uh, and um, the, so it has to be something that had to have been done quickly for some reason. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, uh, because uh, indeed you could have had a conspiracy to make sure he wasn't reelected, and it was very much in doubt. And the and the fact that it was very much in doubt was one of the reasons why Kennedy visited Dallas. Actually, was because the election was in doubt. Okay, so just to make sure the the listeners are getting, you're saying it wasn't a foregone conclusion that Kennedy was going to be reelected. Right, so right, rather than right. take the risky move of having a you yeah. know a coup d'état, why not just wait and see if he loses and then. Yeah. Whoever you know come, comes in, then you know work with that guy and and try to get get your war in Vietnam escalated. Right, if that right. if that's what the plan was, yeah. Or, or or if you're going to assassinate the president, why not wait until just after the election? Oh, oh meaning if, even if he does win, you can still even take if him he out. Does then win, you you know um, right right okay. Uh, so I had to convince it's, it's it, you you did raise a good point as I ne- had never thought you know in other words we always get bogged down in in looking at the details and, oh, gee, the Warren Commission said this happened, but come on, that could bubble or whatever. And you're right, just starting from scratch, if they were going to do it, why do it in broad daylight or whatever? Mm-hmm. I, I suppose, do any of the conspiracy theorists answer that? Like, I guess you could say they wanted it to be a public spectacle to have like a chilling effect. In other words, if they did it behind the scenes and it was poison and didn't look like a murder, then it might, might not have had the leveraging effect on future presidents, like the same, you know, inner cabal. I, I know you're going to say, how do I know that? But yeah. I'm just saying, theoretically speaking. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, I know people who believe that in this conspiracy theory uh, in passionately and who think that it was a coup d'etat and that ever since then, the, um, the government of the U.S. has been c- controlled by the same inner group. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think that um, it's a bit fantastic if you think about the presidents we've had since Kennedy, culminating in Trump, uh, to think that this inner group uh, chose to work through these very different people. Uh, you know, I, 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 to me, that's a fantastic supposition. Well, well, I mean, again, just playing devil's advocate, wouldn't wouldn't they say something like? 
Well, yeah, Nixon came in, and then when he wasn't playing ball the way they wanted, they used the, you know, the Watergate stuff to get rid of him because in the grand scheme, Watergate was peanuts. They got rid of him. And then Gerald, uh, I guess Carter, I don't have a great one for, but the other ones, I mean, certainly weren't against starting wars, right? In other words, if, if, the, right. if the motivation was Kennedy was, was too soft, he wasn't going to you know, give us our defense budgets that we wanted in bombing campaigns. You know, it's not like Reagan, the Bushes, and Clinton and Obama were against bombing foreigners, right? <laughs> right, right. Okay. Yeah, so. yeah. I mean, Kennedy wasn't Tulsi Gabbard. Oh, right, right. So that, that I got, and I, I understand he, what you're he, saying. He, that it's, he it, was, you know, there's no, there's no evidence he would have been reluctant to, um, to mm-hmm. win the war in Vietnam. I mean, the, have to remember that you, you mustn't use hindsight. They were trying to win. Uh, I, I, of course, you could argue that they wanted to lose ignominiously in a long, protracted, embarrassing <laughs> debate. But that, <laughs> what's their motive for that? You know, right, right. Yeah, no, I, I understand what you're saying. You had, I guess, the last thing I want to ask you about, if if you don't mind, is you had another great point because this is something I always wondered about, and you're tying it to the difficulty of having these conspiracies. Is you were saying with the issue of WMD in Iraq? So mm-hmm. you know, get and. I'm not putting words in your mouth. You agree the Bush administration knew they were at least exaggerating the evidence? Mm-hmm. Absolutely, not. yeah. Okay. Yeah. And so then you you made the excellent point, because I wondered this myself, you know, when they they go in there and they're looking around and they're asking Rumsfeld at press conferences and he's, oh yeah, we know where it is. It's in Tikrit, isn't it? And then just time keeps passing. And so you, you raise the issue of, you would think, why don't they just plant it? And yeah. say, oh, we found it. Here it yeah. is. And so I don't know if you remember, do you need me to prompt you or do you remember what, what your argument was as to why you, you thought they didn't, they just well, kind of admitted I, uh, I, I think that, um, that there's a difficulty with conspiracy theories in liberal democracies. Uh, mm-hmm. And that is that for them to be really effective, a lot of people have to know. And you can't really guarantee that somebody's not going to spill the beans. And nobody has spilled the beans on the Kennedy assassination. Um, but, um, you know, uh, or the people who have spilled the beans are people who didn't have much connection uh, and, and they tended not to spill the beans until many years later. Uh, so uh, basically they were, they were confabulating. Uh, but so, yeah, I mean, I, I think uh, that it would have been too risky to try and plant WMDs in Iraq. Uh, and um, and say that they were the Saddam's w- WMDs. I just think it would have been too risky, and that's uh, it wouldn't have been something beyond the reach of the Soviet Union because they could just make sure that everybody was silenced. But I think it's very difficult to do that in a liberal democracy. Right. So, by the way, you just—I mean—you sort of caught it. I mean, there have been people like you know Howard Hunt and said so there have been people mm-hmm. who have confessed to their role in the. The conspiracy, but you're saying for those people, in other words, there have been people, yeah, right, right, and um, I forget her name, but the one saying, oh, th- those aren't the photos that I took, yes. uh, you know, so okay, but I, these, yeah, I mean, these are the kind of d- discrepancies you expect to get in any big case, you know, and they're always anomalies and things, right, and, and not that it's dispositive one way or the other, but I mean, you do see how. <laughs> it's like you say, oh well, then where are the people coming forward? And we say, oh, we have people who've come forward and they admitted. He said, yeah, but they don't count because they're yeah, usually their memories change over time. <laughs> right, right. You know, I mean, so, I mean, uh, um, the, the one of the subplots of all this is Marina Oswald, and um, mm-hmm. there was a point quite late, uh, I forget the date, where she was converted she, by David Lifton to at least publicly preaching. The, the, the conspiracy theory. But mm-hmm. up until that point, 
she never had any doubt that her husband had done it. And, you mm-hmm. know, there was that point where they went into the garage and, and they, and she said, yeah, the rifle's right there in that blanket. And the cop picked up the blanket and there was nothing in it. And, you know, then she realized that her husband had done it. And that was what she thought at the time that uh, she mm-hmm. later had a change. She later had a conversion to the conspiracy theory, but, um, Usually the conspiracy theory people say that um, Oswald didn't really have that rifle and never bought it. And that, uh, of course, he bought Mm -hmm. it under a fake name. So they say Lydell, I think, was the fake name, uh, was not really Oswald. But I mean, you know, there's there's so many things about this that that would be very strange if that was true. Uh, You know, that that Oswald uh, tried to shoot... uh, that right-wing general, retired general, Mm -hmm. um, and, um, and missed... Uh, put a put a bullet hole in his front door or front window or whatever it was. You know, the, there's all those things that go to make a pretty coherent picture of Oswald as this guy who was had assassination on his mind. You know, right, right. Okay, and I was jotting notes to myself when I just want to make sure that the the listeners got your point about the WMD. Your the, your point was even though one might have certainly put wouldn't put it past them morally that why wouldn't the Bush yeah. administration just tells people, okay, well, we're kind of in a pickle here. We just invaded a country because of alleged WMD. Let's at least plant something. And you're saying, because if they were to do that, somebody might say something or either somebody yeah, might right. catch it on film, yeah. you know, pull their phone out and take a recording. It would be difficult to do that in a way yeah. where hundreds of people wouldn't know that something very strange had happened. And, right. uh, okay. and that would be to make it too risky. Okay. And so in the relevance, obviously, is to say, so if in a situation like that, instead they decided it would be better for us just to admit we invaded a country because we screwed up, you know, they would say right. screwed well, up, of course, others, others they, would say I mean, lie. But also, of course, they used double talk and equivocation, mm, you know, right. I mean, they didn't admit that they'd screwed up for a long time, you know, this, mm. um, uh, I mean, you see, it's not just whether there were WMD there, but whether they had good evidence there were WMD there. And this, right. of course, mm. they they were claiming afterwards that, well, it looked very much as though, there were, well, of course, it didn't look, that's precisely right. the way, it didn't look that way. Mm-hmm. The experts were unanimous in saying that there were no WMDs there mm. uh, before the invasion. Uh, but um, after the invasion, they said, well, we, you know, it's an innocent mistake. We thought yep. WMDs there. But your your point, which is I think is a very strong one, is to say, we all can agree, you know, even those of us who hate the U.S. federal government or the people running it, you know, think they're a bunch of killers and whatnot or liars. In that situation, clearly they decided, okay, the way we're going to play this is, just, you know, to not fabricate it because that's too risky. That has too many right. downsides, right. even though they were, they were in a pickle. So likewise, you're saying you can't just assume it's real simple just to say, oh, if you're, you know, the deep state, you can just you can tell prosecutors to do this. You can just, you know, have the FBI guys do this. You can just, da, 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 you know, buy off a medical examiner that when there's more and more people that you need to bring in and it's it gets yes. harder to maintain. Yes. So I, I do yes. think that, that, you know, that that is a good point uh, that you bring up there. Okay, well, I, I think this is a good point to, to wrap up the conversation. Uh, folks, this is bobmurphyshow.com slash 151. If you want to see links to everything we've been talking about. The book we've been discussing is The Mystery of Fascism. My guest has been David Ramsey Steele. Uh, David, thanks so much for your time. Thank you for having me. All right. We'll uh, give links to all that stuff, folks, and we'll catch you next time. You've just experienced another episode of The Bob Murphy Show, the podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. For more information and to subscribe to this podcast, visit bobmurphyshow.com.